Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. This is Veterans Day weekend. If you have served in our nation's military, or if you are currently serving, we would just like to take a moment and recognize you for your service. Would you please stand right now? Would you go ahead and do that if you have served or you currently service? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You know, I know that you guys, I know that you don't always like to do that and you get recognized a lot, but if you do this simple act, because it's, we need as a nation to continue to remember. And it, it's about you, but it's also, it's important for us that, uh, that our nation and, and our citizens continue to recognize that we enjoy the ability to meet here and to talk about the word of God and to experience and to express our religious freedom, largely because God has called men and women like you, to stand in the gap and do, and do all kinds of things that, that the civilian population or, you know, those who have never served just don't necessarily get the chance to experience. So once again, we, we do honor you and thank you. And I really do, I do mean that. So we've been in our Keeping the Fire Burning series. And so today, if you have a Bible, turn to, to, to Titus chapter 2. So it's towards the back of your Bible. And the whole idea is we want to keep ourselves sharp as a congregation. We want to keep ourselves aware of what God wants us to do and how he wants us to live. And so that we could have the best possible picture or testimony to the world about who Jesus is and what he, what he can offer the world and certainly what he's doing in our lives. And so as we look at chapter 2, verse 1, he starts out by saying this verse, but as for you, so what's, what's been happening now is he's been talking about what kind of people should be leading the, the church. And so we talked over the last couple of weeks about the type of leaders. And we know that in our nation and just with our, in our churches, whether it's politics or, or in the church or in business, there's failure all over the place. You know, I just read recently about the CEO of McDonald's. He got fired because he, was, he had an inappropriate relationship with another employee. I mean, McDonald's, you know, and it's like, but, it even, but you can imagine it sends shockwaves through an organization like that. So, so what kind of leaders should we be looking to? And is there, is there any industry that's left untouched when it comes to leadership, right? So he's been talking about the kind of qualities we should have in our leaders and really translates into us because our leaders come from within, right? In our churches. And so he's going to continue to talk about, and then he says, watch out for those people who are going to inject things into the message of the gospel that aren't there and then add things to the beauty of the gospel and distort it, right? And so now he's going to continue on in his, in his whole thing, and he says this, but as for you, and he's talking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So in other words, he's saying, I want you to teach what is consistent with or appropriate to what sound doctrine is. And so you say, well, what does it mean? What is sound doctrine? So let me give you a couple of principles about that and then, and then what it means to teach an accord, because I actually think it's a huge... Uh, subject that we, I want to talk about, and then he's going to get very practical. So when we talk about sound doctrine, 
Because it kind of sounds like a very serious phrase, sound doctrine. And it kind of sounds almost boring, too, like sound doctrine. Like I just go sit in a doctrine class or read a doctrine book, right? It doesn't really sound like a really exciting thing. But sound doctrine has to do with two things. First, it's gospel-centered. So in other words, our church needs to always be focused on the message of the gospel. And we talk about this constantly. And if you're like, yeah, Tim, here we go again, it's because once the minute you think, oh yeah, I know this, that's good because you actually probably know it at this point. So it's not just self-help kind of stuff. It's focused on the fact that Jesus is Lord of our lives and he changes people's lives. He rescues people in the furthest reaches of their sin and it's powerful. And it's that message that we have, not just merely how to become a better person. Jesus is our savior, our forgiver. He is our king and our redeemer. But the second thing is it's biblically rooted. So it's not, so sound doctrine means we believe in the gospel-centered first. So it's gospel-centered first. It's about Jesus. But secondly, we believe in the authority of Scripture. Very, very important. The Bible is our final authority for our faith in our life. And it's important because we don't just say, well, you know, the Bible's okay, but over here I have my own reason as well. And a lot of times people will say, well, the Bible's fine, but in my opinion, I think this. And it's not that we shouldn't apply standards of, of reason. The scripture actually says in Isaiah, come let us reason together. But we are to submit ourselves to the authority of scripture to be able to say, we believe it to be true. So if there's things that don't make sense, let's investigate it. Let's look at it, but let's not dismiss it. Let's say there may be something that we are missing. There may be something that we don't understand about this, but we take it as the final authority. Because if the scripture's not the final authority in our lives, then something else will be. And that something else will always be our own interpretation and understanding, which then opens the door for all kinds of other ideas. So when we talk about sound doctrine, we're really talking about gospel-centered understanding of life and the, and the authority of scripture. But it's not merely teaching scripture. And this is the part I like about this verse. He says, teach what accords with scripture or what is an agreement or consistent with it. In other words, it's help people practically live out their lives in ways that make sense for today. Because we are living a continuing story from the early church. And the things that they dealt with back then are not necessarily the things that we have to deal with. I mean, you know, we all, there's dangers out there, but you don't necessarily today have to be worried about being thrown to a bunch of lions necessarily, or you don't have to, you know, worry about, um, you know, necessarily taking care of a lot of, you know, livestock. I mean, some of you may, but it's not, there's different things now. And they didn't have to worry about Instagram. They didn't have to worry about, you know, the, all, the, a lot of the stuff that we have with our te technologically driven lives. So there's different things that we have to deal with. And, and so we take the message is always the same, but our methods and our teaching continues to evolve as we try to apply the principles in very practical ways today. And the reason why is because our lives should look like Jesus over time. So if Jesus were alive today, how would he live in our world? Because he'd have to deal with everything that we have to deal with. But here's the thing, the whole goal of this, the whole goal of living a certain way according to sound doctrine is so that we can become disciples of Jesus who then make disciples of Jesus. Now, this is so huge, because again, zooming out, the whole reason that Paul is writing this book to Titus is so he can train people who will train people. That's very important. It's not just train people, 
It's trained people who will then have the DNA in them to then be able to pass that on to somebody else. And so oftentimes, our, when, we talk, when we think of disciples or followers of Jesus, those people tend to become cul-de-sacs. They become people who, they receive a certain amount of information and it stops with them and they don't have that, that multiplication gene to be able to pass it on to the next person. So it's important to remember, for example, one of the most important or one of the most critical words of Jesus at the very end of his life after he rose from the dead. And he says in Matthew chapter 28, what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the command was, now you go, I'm leaving, you go. And you make disciples. And what that means is that we are all called to be disciples who make disciples. And the way I would put it is, everyone gets one who gets one. So you get one in your life. You find somebody in your life to build into. And then as you're building into them, as you're saying, follow me as I follow Jesus, you then say, hey, other people are looking at you. Other people are going to be watching you. And that is the, that's kind of the key that we tend to miss. And so the purpose of sound doctrine and, and teaching what is the core of sound doctrine is to produce people who will live lives that will be then instructive to others. So it doesn't end with Titus, and it doesn't end with the people that Titus is training. And that same principle follows with us today. We, are, we cannot be people who are cul-de-sacs, spiritually speaking. In other words, I or whoever stands on this platform after me teaches you something, and then it ends with you. It has to be something that you put in your arsenal because your mission is to find those who need to hear what you have to say and need to learn how to live how you are living because you're a follower of Christ. It's a brilliant thing, and it should be quite humbling to us that God would, would call as, his, as people who are to be models for what it looks like to live a life worthy of him, that he would call us to be that. It's kind of crazy. So if I were to ask you right now, who are you discipling right now? Who are you mentoring? Who is looking to you to be more like Jesus? Would you have an answer to that? So that's what's happening here. That's kind of the whole theme here. So we'll go ahead and read this. So this, this, now he begins to break it down again into those specifics about what our lives are to look like. And so he says this in in verse two. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women. Do you see what's happening? So they live a certain way and then train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. See this theme here? And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So <clears throat> that's the bulk of it, right? Now in there, there are four groups. <clears throat> older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. 
Nice thing about that is that basically encapsulates everyone, right? There's no one, because it doesn't say old man and young man. It's like, well, what if you're in the middle or, you know, I'm not old. It's those that are older and those that are younger. Now, where's the line? I don't know. But you kind of know when you get there, though, right? You kind of know when you're kind of getting to be like, I, and if, you know where you are in that list, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I'm probably on the older end, right? And typically, it's probably if you have kids at that point. And sadly, then they didn't live very long back then either. So if you were in your 40s, man, you were like, you were kind of getting up there, right? They were checking your pulse every day, like, you still around? I mean, this is the way that it was in the world, right? So anyway... So, so let's break this down and, and talk about this because, again, we're, we're, the goal is to, is to begin to live a life that actually is for not just for the purpose of glorifying or, or pleasing or obeying God, because that's important, but so that it's put on display and becomes a life that other people actually follow so that you live in such a way that you live with that responsibility, with that knowing that your life is going to be watched and modeled. So let's start with the older men. He says they're to be sober-minded. And in this case, that, that word sober-minded has to do with the word temperate, which specifically means to not get drunk. Now, you might wonder, why does he start off with that? Like, why would he, that would be the number one thing. Well, you know, remember last week he quoted the Cretan prophet, and you can see it in the earlier scripture. It says, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And he says, basically, that's true, Right that this is how they're known, and I can't argue that, that there's a lot of truth to that. And it doesn't take a genius to reason that a big reason, or big reason for this would be alcohol. They're like, they probably just got drunk a lot, and they were probably, it was probably part of their culture kind of in a systemic way. And so Paul is saying, look, if these guys are going to begin to live the life that God intended them to live, they need to do it sober, in other words, they need to have, they need to be paying attention. They need to not be checked out. And so the call for older men is to pay attention and to be alert and to not be, not be incapacitated. And I think there's a larger principle there because you know what, guys? Life is war. It really is. Life is war. And when you leave something that you're not watching over and you leave it unattended. It doesn't tend to get better. It tends to deteriorate. And so I think he's saying older men need to live in such a way that they have the capacity not only to have themselves under control, but to give themselves <clears throat> to the service of other people. And I think that does tend to go into substance abuse as well. And, you know, this is hard because the more and more that, like, marijuana seeps into our culture as a mainstream thing, the more those lines get blurred. But it was interesting. Like, I was talking to this young guy recently, and he was actually giving me a haircut. And he goes, you know, he's like, yeah, when I get high, I actually am a better dad. And I'm like, hmm, please explain. And he goes, well, you know, because I'm, I just, I get so stressed out all the time and I, you know, I get, I smoke some marijuana and I feel good and I just, I get down on the floor with my kids and I'm playing with their toys and, and then I'm happy and I'm laughing with them and stuff. And, you know, and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Well, and, and now, but what's happening? He's using that drug to, to take off all the anxiety so he can forget what's really going on. And then he can be kind of in this little magical kind of happy land, you know, with his kids. But wouldn't the better question to be addressing, 
Why am I so anxious to begin with? Why am I so stressed out? Why is it that I cannot get through my day and play with my kids without this? What is going on that is preventing me from being able to have a normal father relationship with my kids without being high? And that's, that, that's the long-term question to ask. And that's an important thing. Like what what is cause? So, so part of it, guys, is learning how to confront the things that are preventing me from being the person that God has called me to be. Because as I said, life is war. It is, it is war against all the things that attack the things that we love. And, and so older men are challenged to be those guys. And you know what? As I'm getting older, I really like getting older, actually. I mean, there's some things I don't like about it, but I kind of like watching, you know, like my wife and I, we were talking about this last night, how our kids are growing up, and you start to move into this different phase. But, but the glory of being an old guy is found in not being needy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like I love the old guys that are just like, yeah, I'm good. You know, they don't need anything. They don't complain about anything. They don't whine about anything. They're just there, you know, and they have good wisdom and stuff, but like they're, but they're dependable, right? They're not like, oh, what are we going to do with this guy? He's just, you know, he doesn't pay his bills. He didn't have any money. It's like, no one, no one likes an old guy like that. Old guy, if you're going to be old, <clears throat> you might as well be somebody who has enough left over to give and support the other people and not you yourself be the one in trouble. And it doesn't mean that you can't be honest about your feelings or anything like that. But there's this idea that you don't go off the deep end and you stay faithful and so he uses the word steadfast, which is the capacity to bear up or hold out in the face of difficulty. And that's just a cool thing for an old guy to have. That's a cool quality. And why is it so important? Because the young men are watching more than we know. The young men are going, how do I do this thing called life? And you know, I'll tell you, you older guys, and I would put myself almost in that category. I mean, I'm in the middle kind of. I'm 45. Like, I'm in the middle, okay? So don't give me any grief. I know I'm not young, but I ain't old yet, all right? But I'm just saying. But here's the thing. We have to, do you know how many, how much fatherlessness there is in our society right now? It's terrible. And we have so many guys who are like, I don't know how to do this thing. I don't know how to do it. The mechanism that we have here at Compass Church to be able to help with this problem is connection groups. And that's why our connection groups, as much as we want them to be, are intergenerational. And I would hope that, because the connection group isn't an end into itself. It's not like, well, you have to do this thing. It's, it's to open, it, the, goal isn't, it, the goal of connection group isn't to attend a connection group. The goal of connection group is connection and relationships that last beyond Sunday morning. Because everybody knows that the one that does the most talking on Sunday morning is me. And that's, you know, not advantageous to everybody else. It's advantageous to me. I like it. But it's not advantageous to you because you need to be able to, f to develop relationships with each other and fill in these gaps. Because our job is to get one who, get, who gets one. Okay, so then as you are encouraging younger men <clears throat> and as relationships get built, the idea is that you then turn to the younger men and you say, now what about your sons? And what about the people coming up behind you? Because when you give a young man responsibility, that's how, see, that's, that's, how you, that's how you corral a young man is you give him responsibility. You don't just make excuses for him or don't say, ah, this guy's an idiot, he can't do anything. No, you say, listen, we need you to do this. Anyway, so the next thing is the older women. <clears throat> and so he says, they're likewise. So in other words, take all that 
And then he's kind of going off here, you know, they're to be reverent behavior, not slanderers or slaves so much wine. And then they're to teach what is good and train the young women. By the way, the word slanderer in the original language is the word diabolos. I don't think I need to explain that. It's very interesting that the words that we say when we slander in the Greek language were equivalent to satanic attack. Now, these older women would have, you know, in, in this culture, would have had grown children and would have probably had time on their hands because they don't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily have worked outside the home, per se, and they would have been much more socially connected and sometimes too much time on their hands. And so the idea is that they would get together and you know how it goes, you know, the kind of the gossip would start. I was at a conference last week in Dallas called Mosaics, and I heard this guy named Miles McPherson preach. And he said, he said the problem with labels is that you can never love a person past the label that you put on them. And I thought that was so good. You know, when, when, we, when we slander one another and we're gossiping, we're making assumptions about people. When we know what, how we look how she raises her kids and we know what that family's going through. And I bet those, you know, they, they had a clue. They would be able to. And the minute you start throwing those labels out, they're not your neighbor anymore. And we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. And who is my neighbor? Well, then that's the story of the Good Samaritan, right? It's the last person you think. But when we label someone, we can't love a person past that label. And you think about that. I thought that's very profound. So Paul is saying, use the verbal gift that God gave you not to slander other women, but to teach them. Now, I, I honestly, and this is another thing that I want to just bring up, because I was trying to deal with this honestly. Like, you're reading this and going, okay, well, how does this translate? Because the reality is for, I, I would say that for, it's easy to say that younger women can teach, or older women can teach younger women, but it's hard to do. Because we live in a society that the older you get, the society says the less relevant you are. And you younger women, I think you don't necessarily understand how hard it is for the older women in your life. Because they go through a daily process where they feel pushed out. They feel pushed out of the mainstream of society because maybe they don't, have, they don't look like they used to 20 years ago. They're not up on all the, the, the latest styles or fashions or even what to say. And so people look at them and go, well, you know, you don't have anything to contribute anymore. And so I think that that, that builds walls between us because like there's the older women up there that are like, well, I guess no one, there's no need for me anymore. And the younger women are like, eh, you know, but if we realize that if there's an older, if there's a woman in your life, younger woman, younger ladies, who has raised a child into adulthood, she knows more than you t typically about, about motherhood. She's been through more stages. And if she's a believer in Jesus and she's walked faithfully with her husband and maybe she's even had some hiccups, she has, she has things to offer you. Even in her own failures, she has things to offer you. So while it's probably be awkward for an older woman to go up to a younger woman and say, hey, can I mentor you? That might feel weird. I think it's much easier for an older or younger woman to go up to an older woman and say, can I take you to coffee? Can I just listen to you? Can you just tell me about your life? Do you know how much that would mean to the older women in our church? Some of you younger women, if you just did that. And I know it's, I know it's scary, but somebody has to make the first move and just say, can you just tell me about, I just want to learn from you. I have no agenda. And again, connection groups are our primary mechanism for that. But even within those connection groups, there's opportunities to push it further. And then we start forging new relationships and what's happening? Discipleship's happening. Mentoring's happening, right? And so it takes a risk. 
But regardless, it was seen as the job of older women to train the younger women. But what are they to train them for? And this is where it gets fun. Because he's saying, train them. And then he says, train them to what? To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So this is where, like, some of the ladies in here are like, okay, right, what is this, right? I mean, because now the list seems to be growing of, in terms of what, years, what it looks like. So even though that there are certain women that might take offense to something like this, please don't, and I'll tell you why. Do you know what the building block of society is? The basic form, do you know what, do you know the, the social structure that precedes government and precedes even society itself? Do you know what that building block is? It's the family. The family is the, is the atom in the physics of society. It is, the, it is the, the smallest element. It is the basic element of society. Without the family, you don't have a workable society. This is why totalitarian regimes, when they want to actually control people and bend them to their own will, they will always attack the family because they know if they can attack the family that they can change the basic human social structure. But if you can leave the family intact, there's, you don't have a prayer of changing the way human beings function in the way that God intended, right? So if the family is the basic structure of society, do you know who is at the heart of the family? It's mom, it's the woman. It's, I, it just is. And you know, you need to hear that because you don't hear it enough. And, and, and I, I'm all about freedom and I'm all about women having the ability to do whatever God puts them on their heart to do. I really, I have two daughters, we're, we're raising two daughters and we're excited about giving them as many opportunities as they possibly can. But you have to know that a woman is the heart of the home. And I'll prove it to you. And this, you know how I know this? I, I, I will know this because, see here, did you know a long time ago we used to call women that stayed at home and didn't maybe work outside the home? What do we call them? We call them homemakers, right? We don't really use that word anymore. Like, do I, it's been a long time since I've heard a woman say, I'm a homemaker. It's almost, almost like a, that's like, that's from the 1950s. Like, we don't say that anymore. But think about, and I thought about this. I thought, what a, think about that term for a minute. A homemaker. You make a home. You make, you construct, you, you author a home. That's a pretty big deal when you think about it. Like, that's a pretty noble title. If you ask, so I'm just saying we threw it out because, oh gosh, you know, how dare we say such a thing. But it's actually kind of a cool concept and maybe badly needed in the world, right? A home maker, because men don't make the home. <laughs> men exist in a house with their offspring. <laughs> hey. Right? The closest thing that men do to make a home is put up Christmas lights. That's basically it, right? This was never more plainly illustrated to me than when our executive pastor of students and families, Mike Zerati, when his wife went away for a few days, and so he was in charge of feeding his kids. And he wrote on Facebook, he put on Facebook, 
When your wife is gone, you turn Lunchables into Dinnerables. <laughs> he fed his kids Lunchables. Do you know what those things are? They're prepackaged things that you buy in the lunch aisle in the refrigerator section at the, at the, at the store. And they have little pieces of, of like manufactured ham and, and crackers. And it, you just, all you do is you pull the sheet off of the top and you hand it to them. And it's designed to be something to get you through the day. This is, this is what he, he thought was a reasonable substitute for the meal of dinner. Now that, my friends, is why men don't make the home. They don't do that. Now I know there are exceptions. Well, my, hus- my husband cooks. I know, fine, okay, whatever. You know, and he probably does everything and he's a super stud. But I'm just saying, in general, men don't make the home. But, and I wish more women took pride in that, but I understand it's hard because when women don't work outside the home, they said they don't, you know, they're so, well, you don't work. It's like, huh, yeah, right? I folded some laundry the other day and I about died. I'm like, there was a pile of laundry and I, I folded the laundry, but I mean, like, I'm like, I'm gonna do the whole thing, right? And it was very, very, um, um, what do you call it? I was being very, uh, my, 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 my brain is fading on me right now. I was really going for it, right? I'm going to tackle the entire pile. And I just, my brain just, I was physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted after just, because what do you do with a sock that's that big, right? And there's only one of them. But anyway, all I'm trying to say is, these are very important things, but we dismiss them as stupid. And, and so, so there's this list given because there's an identification by God that, men, that women are absolutely 100% critical to the lifeblood of society and its virtue. So there's other things too. You know, Paul says, love your husbands. And that word is literally, actually, it's interesting. It's the word philandros. since where we get philander from. It's kind of weird. But it's phil, um, which is phileo, which is love, and andros, which is man. So love your husband. You know why? Because he's hard to love sometimes. So it's love your husbands, right? Love your husbands because they're hard to love sometimes because they do bonehead things because they say bonehead stuff because they don't always do what you want. But so it's work sometimes to love them. And then when he says working at home, does that mean she can't work outside the home? No, but in that culture, most women didn't work outside the home. And so, so if you're going to be at home, be busy. Don't sit around and be idle because that leads to bad stuff. So keep yourself busy. And then again, once again, it says submissive to their own husbands. So there's all this whole, this whole verse you can see. There's a lot of things on there. But the idea, again, of submission is a choice not to take abuse. So please, when you hear these kinds of things, don't read into it. Oh, you should just get slapped around or verbally abused or emotionally abused. No, it is a choice to say, you know what? I am going to trust that this man has been, is God's man for me to provide for our family and to take care of us ultimately. Doesn't mean that I don't have a say. Doesn't mean that we don't have parity on just about everything, but I'm not going to be wildly anxious about everything in our lives because I'm gonna trust that this man, while imperfect, is God's man for me. And that's really what submission, when it ultimately comes down to, is about. It actually is supposed to produce a woman who has greater levels of peace and strength in her life as opposed to freaking out about everything because she feels like she has to be the one who's always in control of stuff. So that's just kind of the way that it is. And it, and it, and it demonstrates a model. Now, again, there's many different ways to work that out, but these are principles that begin to get down into the nitty-gritty of what it looks like to be someone who now lives a life that other people can follow and be successful at as they're following Jesus. And I can tell you, you know, 
Judy and I have been married for 21 years, and you start to get to the point in your life where you feel like, you know, I have a little bit of authority to speak on this because we have a child, you know, we have an 18-year-old off of college, and we have two more that we're raising, and it was so, in fact, we went to dinner last night. We went down to St. Francis downtown, great restaurant, and we were, at, we were just had a great time talking, and, and we were kind of reflecting on our kids, and, and she was talking about, because before we got married, you know, she um, worked for the LA Times for a while, and she was in the advertising, and she worked with real estate agents, and she knew some of the, the high-rolling high real estate agents in the LA area because of, they were advertised a lot, and so she'd go visit them a lot. This is back in the day before the internet was getting big and everything. And, and, but she talked about it. She goes, you know, she goes, um, you know, in her 20s and whatever, she was working there at the LA Times, and she just thought, you know, I... Uh, yeah, it was fine, but I was alone, you know, and I was, I mean, here was, I was, and I was providing for myself, and yeah, it was kind of a cool career, I guess, but she says, I hate it. I hate waking up in the morning, and we get all these voicemails from these angry real estate agents because they didn't do their job right, and, you know, or what, they was mad about something, and she's like, I just hated that time of my life, and it was, and so when we got married, and then we had our, well, we had Ryan, and then she decided to stay home, and it was like, well, now she's stepping out of this working world, but that's when her heart really came alive, and she goes, that's when I realized what I was meant to be. I was meant to be a mom. I was meant to be a wife. I was meant to make a home. And that's where I found my joy. And we were just talking about that. And it was like, like her whole, like the dimensions of her life opened up. And I only say that to you because no one says that stuff. We reward women for making decisions that very much resemble the decisions that men have to make. And that's fine that we do, but someone needs to be able to speak up for the many women out there who are maybe a little bit confused because they're like, yeah, I guess I'll win in, in, the, in the working world, but if I'm honest and I'm like really quiet, I kind of just, I kind of would love to raise a family and like just be, be in that world and love and, and nurture and make my home. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. So that's why I spent so much time on that. Now, the funny part to me is when we get down to the younger men, because in verse six, it says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it, right? <laughs> he doesn't say anything more. <clears throat> and, I, and I think, I go, well, why is that? Well, because the young men, you know, their brains haven't fully formed until they're 26 years old, right? That's what they say, right? So, so, and that's what I tell my 16-year-old daughter, by the way. I say, there's nothing wrong with high school boys. They're just not ready yet, right? They're like brownies that are still cooking in the oven. Right? There's nothing wrong with brownies in the oven, but you don't want to take them out before they're ready, right? They'll be gross. You know, so just leave them in there. They're no good. You want to leave them, let them cook, because if you take them out too, too quickly, they'll be all unstructured and it'll be a structureless mess that you'll have to deal with. You don't want to deal with that. Let them cook and when they're ready, they'll come out of the oven and that'll be the time, you know? So that's my, if the, my all the stops I pull out to just try to encourage my 16-year-old. Just wait, you know, as much as you can before you give your heart away. But, but Paul keeps it simple. The expectations are low. Control yourself. Now, I say this somewhat in jest, but at the same time, there is very much an awareness that young men will so much steer not only the outcome of their families, but the culture in general as well. There's an old African proverb. If the young men are not initiated into the village, they will burn it down just to feel its warmth. And you see that now. Don't you? you even see it now. You see this. You see a, 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 many of our young men looking at our society the way it is, and they're like, this, you know, this capitalism thing, who needs it, right? And so there is a, there is a, if the young men don't understand, if they aren't initiated into who we are, they'll destroy it just because. And it's true. And so 
our young men have great, and I, I tell young men this, I go, you know, you don't feel like it, but you have, you have great power. You don't feel like it, but you do. And you can use that power to do great good or great evil. And as you continue to live, that will compound, and you have to know that. But see, it's the responsibility of the older men to help the younger men understand that. Because so many of our younger men are going through life for the first time. In other words, they're going through it for the first time without any pattern. It's like they're forging their own way, and they're looking for anything that will tell them, give me strength, give me meaning. And so, we have to be training up our young men so they become the husbands and fathers that God is calling them to be. And as much as I joke about my never wanting my daughters to get married, I actually, in all seriousness, I pray for the men that they will marry, and I pray for them often because they will have a greater bearing on my daughters' lives than I will. And that's a weird thing for me to think about, but it's true. But all of this, all, see, do you see that the, so, this is really a sermon about the social component of our church. We've talked about leadership, and now we're getting into the social component because every single one of us fits into one of these categories, and so that's where we are. I cannot believe that I have talked so much that I think I'm missing. Oh yeah, so that, okay. <clears throat> They've reminded me on the screen here that my time is up. I think there was a little bit of a, this discrepancy on how much time I had. So I have to, I'm not even getting into the other part, the chapter, the verse nine and verse 10. So we're gonna get to that later. <clears throat> we'll get to that either next week or some other time. Because I, but I can't keep talking to you or the 9.30 service will come in and then it will be a big mess. But here's the thing that you need to understand <clears throat> or here's the challenge for you. <clears throat> Who are you discipling? Who and, and, and who are you challenging to look out to get someone else? See, I, w- I just want you to challenge. Are you getting one who gets one? Now, that's hard. It's hard. The mechanism is connection groups. That's the number one mechanism, okay? But, and you don't have to say, hey, I'm, I'm, you're my protege. It's, it's, it's natural. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's normal. It just happens, right? And you begin to point to people. Because, you know what, and I've said this many times, but you have to hear it again. One of the biggest reasons in my life, in my ministry here at Compass Church over the past 12 years that I have not morally failed is because I know I have a responsibility to model Jesus to you. And I shudder to think at times decisions I may have made if I had no one who was looking to me. Because sometimes just purely obedience to God isn't enough. I hate to say it. There's times when you just don't care. And there's times when the only thing that keeps you from sin and motivates you to continue walking on the road is you know there are eyes watching. And they are dependent so much on you. And that's the kind of men and women we need to be. So, let's pray. Father, a sermon like this, with so much practicality in it, and yet the challenge is clear. Do we have the ability to be people who are thinking not just about our own spiritual lives, but can we get one who gets one? Can we reach one who will reach one? Can we disciple one who will disciple one? Can we make a disciple who will make a disciple? I pray that there would be people right now in the minds of every single person here. If it's kids, that's great. But it'd be awesome if there was more than just kids. That we begin to go, you know what? 
I want to take responsibility for that person's spiritual condition. I want to pray for that person. I want to love that person. I want to walk with that person. I want to ask them how they're doing. I want to be available to them. And then I want to remind them that their life matters enough that they've got to be available to others. That is your plan. It's laid out clearly here in Titus that we would live and walk in such a way that no one could ever accuse us of not letting the inside match the outside. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.